Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. For decades, not much happened in Libya under the rule of Muammar Gaddafi. Outside of 1986, when President Ronald Reagan ordered airstrikes against Libya for its support of terrorist acts against U.S. troops and citizens. That all changed when Gaddafi was overthrown in 2011 during the Arab Spring. While Libya has not been pulverized to the degree that Syria has suffered in seven years of war, Libya has been a broken state with a steady level of violence ripping apart the country. Joining the crisis next door to talk about Libya's future is Jonathan Weiner from the Middle East Institute. Mr. Weiner has been the United States Special Envoy for Libya and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement. Mr. Weiner, thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome, Jason. Libya is essentially divided by three governments, the Presidency Council, the Government of National Salvation, and a third center of power in the eastern part of the country in Tobruk and Baiza. How is that arrangement working, if at all? Well, there isn't really a government of, na- of national salvation. Um, they don't actually control any territory. Um, the government of national accord doesn't really control territory either, but it's uh, the internationally recognized government, and it functions for international purposes as their government. And uh, to some extent, it has authority over budget and over various ministries. The government in the East is not recognized by anybody it is a, a creature of the House of Representatives and of the Speaker of the House of Representatives who agreed to the government of national accord before it was formed and has prevented it from functioning uh, since it was formed. This seems like the most hodgepodge type of state. Uh, it's so hard to figure out how anything can be achieved when you've got so many different groups with control over different parts of the country. Uh, where do you see this going? How does that have to change? Well, Gaddafi, for 42 years, ran Libya, telling Libyans that the people ruled and that he wasn't really making the decisions. They were making the decisions um, under rule of the people. So people got into their head that every Libyan was as good as every other Libyan, and nobody had the right to tell any other Libyan what to do, which is a a good, nice, independent um, idea. But in practice, there isn't anybody who has got enough legitimacy has been granted enough legitimacy by others to be able to take charge. So uh, it's an interesting situation. The reason the uh, the country functions at all is because the central bank pays salaries one way or another to a vast percentage of the people in the country, including militias who oppose one another. So regardless of whether you're working for the government, working against the government, east, west, south, you're probably getting a piece of Libya's oil money one way or another. And that allows the country to continue to manage, for the most part, uh, despite the fact that the government doesn't function very well. Is it possible for these solutions to come from within Libya, or is it going to require the UN and and other countries 
to come to the fore and compel the country to make all of these changes? Uh, Libyans are the basic Libyan approach to negotiation is I'm not willing to give anything up and you can't get any more than you already have, um, which doesn't really work. They're not, they have no historic tradition of working out compromises at a national level because they were under Gaddafi for over 40 years. That's uh, the whole lifetime of most of the people in the country. Um, the problem is exacerbated a lot by the fact that different Libyan groups have had different foreign sponsors. Um, in Misrata, which is a coastal city um, in the uh, western center of the country, uh, it's east of Tripoli, but, but um, still in the west, uh, they've had close relations uh, with the, the Turks going back for hundreds of years, back to when they were ruled by the Ottoman Empire. Um, in the east, there have been close relationships to Egypt for obvious reasons. They share a long, long border. Uh, Turkey and Egypt agree on almost nothing. And so you've had different groups have, have had different sponsors. Qatar has supported some of the Islamists in the country. And as long as you have different countries supporting different groups, they become emboldened not to compromise. And they need to uh, compromise and deal with one another. That's not likely to happen except through a process that's mediated uh, by the U.N. When I was special envoy, the basic approach that I took was it's not the United States to say who should run Libya. really isn't. Libyans have to decide that. But the process has to be guided by in one place. You can't have competing processes. So we work to try and have a U.N. process. Uh, the U.N. Um, special representative of the Secretary General of the U.N. Um, guide that process to get a, a political agreement. We got the agreement, but in the end, some of the Libyans were unwilling to let it function, let it work, because they didn't want to lose the power they'd accumulated. And so the, the, the desire to maintain the power you've got, however you've got it, and to never, ever, ever give it up, no matter what, is very, very deep. And that's what you're dealing with in any country like Libya, where there is not a strong central authority with a democratic base. You mentioned the support for the various militia groups throughout the country from various other powers, such as Turkey or Qatar or Egypt. Libya almost seems like a reflection of the European city-states of the Middle Ages, where each city is its own power center, no central governance. Is it possible to pull these cities back together in a coherent nation? You have just hit a very fundamental point. If you think about an, an awful lot of the Arab Middle East, it's been city-states, very, very, very strong um, local authorities and local powers. I mean, the Gulf states... It's the United Arab Emirates. They're different emirates that have joined together, but they still retain a, a lot of separate federalist um, control. Um, Libya needs revenue sharing at the local level. Some of the local governments are quite functional. In an ideal world, you would have uh, revenue sharing, I believe, with the different cities, different municipal areas. That way, everyone would have an incentive for Libya to pump its oil and to have that oil go to the central bank and then um, get divided up on a per capita basis with some money going back to uh, the regions at, at the city level. At the same time, other revenue can go back um, to stipends to uh, uh, Libyan families, Libyan individuals under a national ID system in the same way the United States does with um, Native Americans in Alaska. That kind of a system would st help stabilize the country. 
it's doable. They have enough um, revenue from oil to do it. But it's a change to the system. Right now, they're all paid according to formulas that were devised in about 2012, 2013. And there's been very little change since then. In order for there to be change, they need to reach compromises. They need to adopt a constitution, a new constitution, uh, have national elections, and have newly empowered leaders who've been democratically elected by the Libyan people uh, then uh, put forward these kinds of reforms. If there was ever a petro economy, it's Libya, most of its money coming in for oil. The fighting has cut significantly into that output over the years, but the National Oil Corporation says Libyan oil production has risen to its highest level since 2013 at more than 1.2 million barrels per day. It's an improvement, but a far cry from the 2 to 3 million barrels per day norm that used to exist. How much is that impacting Libya's attempt to form a, a stable country? Well, if they're pumping more than 800,000 barrels a day, um, they can function. Um, when I was special envoy, they were down at 1.2, 250 to 300,000 barrels a day because all the various militias and groups were uh, shutting uh, off the spigots. Libya's oil comes from the south of the country. It goes in long pipelines up to um, various terminals in the north. So uh, it's easy for a, for a wide range of groups um, to shut down the oil and spite everybody. Libyans realized over time that that was just a disaster. It was one year where they only generated about three or four billion dollars for the whole country. Um, at their peak, they were generating 60, 70 billion a year. So this was just a fraction. And they need about, um, they need a minimum of 15 billion a year, um, to survive. And, uh, 20 billion a year puts them in decent shape. And with the amount they're pumping now, it, it's well in excess of that. So um, the National Oil Corporation has been a stabilizing force. Uh, they continue to do their job in a non-political, technocratic fashion. And what's been really important to Libya's survival is the fact that people have not been able to divert oil and sell it off for their own purposes. The oil goes to international oil companies who make payments for it to the uh, central bank. And that part of the system has still been working is one of the prime reasons why Libya has been able to remain um, a single country um, and function, even if it's not at a great level. Considering the overall chaos in the country, I suppose it's almost a, a minor miracle that that is still functioning like that. Um, Libya actually could be, honestly, a paradise, because the amount of, of sweet oil that it has is sufficient to generate more than enough revenue to take care of every Libyan. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. We're talking about Libya with Jonathan Weiner from the Middle East Institute. Mr. Weiner has been the United States Special Envoy for Libya. How much influence does the former regime have seven years after Gaddafi's ouster? Saif al-Islam Gaddafi has been planning a run in the Libyan presidential elections in December for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Libya after his release from prison last year. What kind of support would he receive, and from where? Well, uh, there were people who were winners under the 42 years of uh, Muammar Gaddafi, and there were people who were losers. Um, the winners included people who lived in Tripoli, which was the, it became you know, the central city, people who were high-level bureaucrats, people with importing licenses. And so those people, as well as people in his tribe, people of Sirte, where he came from, tended to be winners. Uh, people with um, uh, who are Islamists who wanted a religious element of the government were losers. 
Um, and people in the South were losers. Uh, people in the East didn't feel they got their fair share. So if you think about it from that point of view, a reversion to the status quo ante, the way it used to be under Muammar Gaddafi, that would be the people who would be most likely to support uh, Saif Gaddafi, his son. Does it seem like he would have a reasonable chance at winning in these elections? A fundamental issue uh, with Saif uh, Gaddafi is that there's a warrant for his arrest from the International Criminal Court. He's going to have to face trial, I would think, for the alleged uh, war crimes associated with what happened in the course of Libya's uh, rebellion, revolution from his father. And whether that happens in Libya or under the ICC is going to be a a matter of um, discussion and litigation. But it would be very complicated um, for him to run for office without addressing the war crimes issue. And I think they have to be addressed first. You mentioned the Islamicists. Uh, ISIS has been active in Libya for years, although unable to carve out a caliphate like it did in Iraq and Syria, yet its attacks are frequent. Does ISIS have a significant future in Libya, or is it more of an irritant at this point? And, and how does it compete with al-Qaeda and other Islamicist groups in Libya? That's a great set of questions. Um, first, they did um, control territory uh, in 2015. They took over Sirte, uh, the city of Sirte, and territory around Sirte, starting um, right on the coastline, uh, literally separated Libya's east from Libya's west on the main highway that connects uh, the whole coast. And they controlled a fair amount of Libyan territory for a period of time. It was an important part of our policy in the Obama administration to find a way to take them out. In 2015, when we worked to create the Government of National Accord, one important objective was to have a government we could work with that would publicly ask us to support them in uh, getting rid of the Islamic State in Libya. When we got the Government of National Accord, I went to every member of the Presidency Council, it was a nine-person council, and asked them if they wanted the United States to do this. Every one of them said, yes, we really do, please do. And the Prime Minister went public and asked us to do it. And we worked closely with uh, fighters from Tripolitania, from the western uh, part of the country. And they lost over 500 lives. And they were able to take away all the territory, that is, all of the territory controlled by the Islamic State. It was bloody and it was ugly that they were able to do it. And that was a huge success and very important. Now, they then fled and disappeared and formed cells here and there in Libya. A number of these people had fought um, in Iraq or Syria, mostly Syria. A number of them were not even Libyans, but from other countries, either from Tunisia or from um, uh, Iraq, Syria. Uh, So those people are still there and still want to do damage. It's one of the reasons we want Libya to have a strong, capable government and an effective national army, because they're going to need that to deal with the uh, terrorist threat, just as Algeria has had to deal with it, and Tunisia has had to deal with it, and even Morocco has to deal with it. So it is very important going forward that they form um, enough of a government, enough of a stable government, uh, that they're capable of building out an army that serves a civilian democratic government. And that army's primary goal is going to have to be, first and foremost, 
to deal with the terrorist threat, which is real. Are the Libyans running out of time to be able to form that stable government and army to counter ISIS as we are seeing more ISIS attacks with greater frequency throughout Libya? I think it was worse in 2014-15 than it is today, but it's very hard for me from outside Libya to assess uh, the current threat. But certainly, uh, as uh, the, uh, uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson said many years ago, the prospect of a hanging concentrates the mind. And the prospect of Islamic State threatening uh, Libya is one of the things that focuses Libyans and Libyan leaders on the need to come together. And I think it um, also focuses uh, uh, patrons who have clients in Libya to try and uh, work together to see if we can, if, if we can collectively um, get Libyans to agree on a process that will enable them to form a, form a stable single government. Now, as to the question about al-Qaeda versus Islamic State, there's another group called Ansar al-Sharia, which is domestically Libyan. There's Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia as well. Sometimes the labels change. That is, somebody who's al-Qaeda one week may be Islamic State, the next week may come back being al-Qaeda. There are some people who don't do it, some people who do. There are a lot of unemployed uh, men, young men who uh, learned how to fight and liked to fight uh, during the um, uh, rebellion from Gaddafi, who are potentially available uh, to join a terrorist group if they don't have better options. So it's complicated as to uh, what the sources are for these groups, who's a committed uh, terrorist fighter, and who's looking for a good gig. Think about what the Islamic State offered in, in principle. It offered um, girls, it offered gold, it offered guns, it offered glory, and it offered God. I mean, this is, this is a, a fulfillment of uh, the fantasies of, of young men, if you think about it. It's been a very effective recruiting pitch. Yeah, it, I mean, it hits the basics. Money, sex, religious belief, you're also part of a gang. So it's, um, it is very attractive uh, for those reasons. And a government, a legitimate government, has to offer options and alternatives. And when Gaddafi ruled the country, people had no freedom. You, if you're challenging Gaddafi, you could go to prison, you could disappear, and those things happened. But he also provided free education, uh, scholarships to the West, uh, health care, and a variety of other material things in return for people's loss of freedom, the repression, and his uh, bizarre, eccentric, idiosyncratic rule. Libyan government has to be able to offer its people enough so that they can continue to uh, join together uh, to fight off things like terrorists. Now, the Islamic State is not ultimately attractive anywhere. It's not a regime people really want to live under. So while it can attract fighters, it is very hard in the long run for it to keep territory because it is so brutal and so ugly. And uh, Libyans will, I believe, take up arms uh, against them if they establish themselves again anywhere. The transition to freedom proving to be very, very difficult for most of these countries across the Arab world. It is difficult. But if you look at Iraq today, while Iraq is still a mess, it is not uh, in the state of chaos it was five years ago or ten years ago. Over time, people find ways of stabilizing uh, because people everywhere want to live lives of uh, where they have economic opportunity and security to go about their business. The transitions are very messy and very hard. Uh, what Libya needs to do in a very simple way 
it needs to form a single government that has legitimacy as a result of being elected by the people. And that government has to be permitted by Libyans throughout the country, the Libyan leaders throughout the country, to function. In order to get that, you need to have it be inclusive, and you need to have it be able to distribute resources in a way that's perceived as reasonably fair. That's all very logical, and it should be doable. It's been frustrated by individuals who don't want to give up their own power. When you talk about the national salvation government, for example, in Tripoli, which doesn't really exist, it's under a guy named Guayle. The only reason it exists is because he used to be able, he was a warlord, and he used to be able to get resources, revenues from Libya's oil, uh, to divide up and to uh, uh, um, use uh, for patronage networks, where he was the patron, and he would give money to people. When the government of the National Court came in, he lost that. So he opposed it. He then uh, lost control about four months later. He doesn't really control anything now. In the East, the House of Representatives did very, very well when it moved from Tripoli uh, to, the, to the East and would be able to get resources to the East that they've never been able to get under all the uh, decades of Gaddafi. The Speaker of the House doesn't want to give up his power. There's elections. Uh, he's not going to be Speaker of the House anymore. So it's not really in his interest to allow anything good to happen unless he controls it. And that's the problem is individuals in particular places not wanting to give up their personal power. And ultimately, uh, Libya is going to have to move beyond them. Need some selfless leaders. That will certainly help in that regard. Awfully hard to find them, too, at the same time. Mr. Weiner, thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, we've been joined by Jonathan Weiner from the Middle East Institute. Mr. Weiner has been the United States Special Envoy for Libya and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.